now for your feature presentation. One, or two, or three, or four, but five, or five. What's up, list nerds? I am your host, ex-video store clerk, undiscovered screenwriter, and fellow list nerd Jason Kleberg, and this is Force 5, a show where I force my guests to come up with a movie-themed top five list topic, and then we reveal our picks on air. Summer is by far my least favorite season. Don't get me wrong, when I was young, I loved being out of school, but I also grew up in an area where it would regularly be over 100 degrees for the bulk of July and August, and I am definitely more of a cold-weather person. That being said, there are many aspects of summer that I love. The grill, ice cream, baseball, days getting longer, shorts getting shorter, and of course, the movies. But summer movies are more than just blockbusters. They can bring you to a nostalgic place based on what you're into, and that's what Jen Howell from Every Rom-Com and I talked about on this episode. Five great summer movies. And there were so many ways these lists could have gone because this topic is highly personal, but we have some amazing films on here. We both learned about at least one movie we'd never heard of, and I think we got a cool summer film festival here for those looking to get back into the dog days if it's starting to get cool where you live. So think about what would be on your list of five great summer movies, and we're going to see how our lists compare when we get there. But first... The last show with Billy Ray Bruton was all about platonic friendships, and normally I get enough responses through Facebook and Twitter that I don't need to go to Reddit, but response was kind of tepid on this one, so I went to Reddit, and let me tell you, Reddit came through. Not in the top five, did they get it right? Excuse my language. Okay. Hell no. (laughs) I can't believe. Who who made that list? Who made that? That's blasphemous. Don't look at me. That's blasphemous. I posted this this question, favorite platonic male friendships in film, and the thing made the front page of movies, had over 500 comments, so I'm obviously not going to be able to get to them all, but uh, some of the most upvoted comments, Jack Aubrey and Stephen Maturin in Master and Commander. Happy Meal 98 said Will and Chucky in Goodwill Hunting. At the end of the day, Chucky is the only one who got through to Will. No Country for Old Mate said Danny Ocean and Rusty in the Oceans films. The rest of the crew as well, but particularly those two. Bertram Scudder said Andy and Red in Shawshank. Art Payne said Ben Affleck and Jeremy Renner's characters in The Town. Balls Mahogany Redo said Tombstones, Wyatt Earp, and Doc Holliday. Alcriti said Nick Cage and Javi were adorable in the unbearable weight of massive talent, which I'm pretty sure was in my honorable mentions. Josh Up said Paul Rudd and Jason Siegel in I Love You Man. It's my favorite romantic comedy. An Odd Otter said Maverick and Goose in Top Gun, The Kids in Stand By Me. Ex Pristina said Robert Downey Jr.'s Sherlock Holmes and Jude Law's Watson. And Rincewind120 said Marty McFly and Doc Brown, Murtaugh and Riggs, Rocky Balboa and Apollo Creed, and Bill and Ted. There were a ton of other ones. Uh, This is a really, really deep topic, and I'm sure that at some point we'll probably do it again because there were just too many left off the list. All right, getting to my review this week, I watched a couple of things about policemen behaving badly. Uh, One was too old to die young, and I'm not going to do a full review here. It's a 13-hour television series, I guess, by Nicholas Winding Refn, who did Drive, but it's more akin to Only God Forgives in that it's very, very style over substance. This is a tough one. I, I, I mean, it's, it's a great look of neon-soaked L.A., 
But I swear to God, like 45 minutes of an hour long episode is just stuff that could have been cut out. I'd love to see somebody take an ambitious shot at like really doing a three hour movie out of the 13 hour series, because I'm serious. There are somebody says a line of dialogue and the other person just kind of sits there and stares in the space for 45 seconds before they say something. And uh, it, it was just really tough. I started fast forwarding through parts of it just because it's like, God damn it, get to the point. Miles Teller is in there, and he's okay. Uh, William Baldwin is in there playing this kind of creepy father, and he's really good. There's two main storylines, but I, I don't know. I just don't. I don't really want to spend time doing a full review on this thing. It was. It was really tough to get through. Uh, the other thing that I watched was a lot better, and that's Q and A from 1990. They told Al Riley to search for the truth. A setup. Mike Brennan is the best cop I ever saw. But they never expected him to find it. There's no statute of limitations on murder. If it's not the Q&A, it didn't happen. You can always find somebody to set you up, right? Nick Nolte. Timothy Hutton. Armand Asante. A Sydney Lumet film. Q&A. Rated R. Starts Friday at a theater near you. Deputy District Attorney Al Riley is awakened by a phone call at 3 a.m. and is told to get down to the station because he's got an open and shut case. Mike Brennan, a decorated police officer, has gunned down a man in self-defense, and several witnesses corroborate that story. But Al Riley is going to cross all the T's and dot all the I's, and unfortunately for Brennan, some of those crosses and dots do not add up. When you break it down, Q&A is basically New York Confidential. Up on screen a whole six years earlier than Curtis Hansen's film, L.A. Confidential. All the pieces are here. The young guy investigating cops while in the shadow of his police officer father. The Irish brass working to protect the dirty cop being investigated for political reasons. The prostitutes who have a bigger role in everything than they wish they did. And while it's not as good as Kurt Hansen's masterpiece, it is worth watching. And the reason is because of the performances. Nick Nolte is first on the podium here as the scumbag Mike Brennan. His unkempt look, bushy mustache, and the way he's lensed just make him seem like a brute who's going to snap at any moment. And there are several scenes where he does just that. Adding fuel to the fire is that he just does not care. He rips the shirt straight off a mob boss in one scene and dares the guy to retaliate. We see a murder, slap, sexually assault, and maim people, and you can tell it's all in a day's work for this guy. Nolte really knocked this role out of the park, and you can buy that people would shit their pants if they were locked in a room with him. Yet, even with all of that insanity, he's still really affable at the station. The first time Timothy Hutton's Riley meets him, he's telling a really entertaining story about throwing a perp through a window, just like it's like, so I threw the guy through a window. And while Riley's smirk seems like he's probably nervous, you can tell that Brennan's gotten by on his charm as much as his muscle at this point in his career. While Timothy Hutton does a commendable job, albeit boring job, as the assistant DA who's in over his head, it's the supporting police officers who really carry the film on that side of the thin blue line. Luis Guzman plays Luis Valentin, and if you've ever been on the fence as to Guzman being a good actor, this role should push you right over the top. He's great in this. Cop Rock's Charles S. Dutton is in here as Sam Chapman, an old friend of Brennan's who is morally conflicted, and the film does something here you don't often see. They're legitimately strained by their comrade possibly being dirty. In most films, the dirty cop's friends just blindly back him and they're there to kind of be the roadblock in the way of the DA, but here that's not the case. They hope he's not dirty, and if he is, sure, they'll refuse to throw on the cuffs, but you can tell that they're conflicted. You can see that, you can really see that in Dutton's performance. 
The other standout here is Armand DeSante as Bobby Tex. I think he uh, he's right up there with Nolte as my favorite people in this film. He's the snakehead of a Puerto Rican mob in New York City. And he just nails this nuanced role that could have easily slid into parody had the wrong actor been cast. Now, I'm going to warn you, this film will offend you if you go in with your moral standards for language circa 2023. Everybody here is racist. Everybody here is homophobic. Uh, slurs are just kind of slung around like it's normal way of speaking. And nearly everybody in here is despicable. But in terms of high stakes cop dramas, I thought this film was actually pretty riveting. It was written and directed by Sidney Lumet, one of the greats, based on the book of the same name by Edwin Torres, who also wrote Carlito's Way. Lumet's expertise shows, especially when we see Brennan on screen. He's often shot filling the frame in order to accentuate Nolte's wide, threatening stance or from an angle lower than Nolte in order to give an intimidating loom. As the noose tightens around Brennan's neck, the shots get more chaotic, leading to a great climax set in a police station that is as short and matter-of-fact as it is crazy. The film tries to make some kind of statement on racism in the final few shots, but I almost think the film would have been better without it, because while racism was a big part in how people talked and how they thought, the real theme in this was the brotherhood among the force and how they deal with somebody being dirty. The only things I didn't love about the film were, number one, the score by Ruben Blades, although the original song Don't Double Cross the Ones You Love is kind of a banger, even if it seems ultra corny now, and it was definitely used in the wrong places in this film. And the half-assed, unrequited kindling of an old flame subplot featuring Riley and Bobby Tex's girlfriend, who is played by Jenny Lumet. One of the problems here is that she's just not that great of an actress. And the other problem is that this that side of the story could have been cut completely, and the movie would have been fine. This film was released on April 27, 1990, and did not open with great numbers. It was sixth at the box office, getting killed by the theater steamrolling double feature that was Pretty Woman and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, both of which had been in theaters for over a month. In terms of films that were new that week, it opened next to William Friedkin's The Guardian and Patrick Reed Johnson's Spaced Invaders. I have not seen that one. And hung around for about a month and then made back nearly double its $6 million budget, but clearly it never set the world on fire. This film has never been released on Blu-ray in the United States. It was released on DVD in one of those really terrible snapper cases and got a lackluster release on Blu-ray in France in 2013, but... I think that if this film had a really good release in the United States, it would be re-examined and probably hailed as a lost classic. Frankly, I was shocked that neither Nick Nolte or Armand DeSanti had been nominated for Oscars for their performances. I thought they were that good. So I highly recommend this one, Q&A from 1990. Speaking of recommendations, we've got a different type of sponsor today. Make sure to get your parents' permission before you call. Take it away, Brian Bosworth. You've got the movie. Now get one step closer to the action. Call 1-973-STONE to take the Stone Cold Adventure Challenge, and you could win a trip for two to L.A. to meet Brian Bosworth. Hi, this is Brian Bosworth, and you can match the hard-hitting and exciting action of my new film, Stone Cold. Call 1-973-STONE to take the Stone Cold Adventure Challenge. Make the call. Ride with me. To play, call from your touchstone phone. Ride with Stone as he infiltrates the criminal underground. Complete your assignment, and you're entered to win. Use your head. Watch your back. Take the Stone Cold Adventure Challenge. Our grand prize winner gets a trip for two to Los Angeles. You'll see the sights. And then, dinner with the boss. Let's have a blast in L.A. 
Our first prize runner-up wins a Stone Cold leather jacket. Plus, we're giving away posters autographed by the Boz and Stone Cold t-shirts. The action's here. Just come and get it. $1.95 the first minute. $1.45 each additional minute. Under 18, get your parents' permission. Good, clean, fun. Welcome back to the Force 5 podcast. My returning guest tonight is Jen Howell, anchor of the Every Rom-Com podcast and one of the best doing this podcast thing. Jen, welcome back. Oh, thank you so much for having me back. I'm really excited to be here again. I love this show. Um, even though I'm really busy podcasting all the time, yours is one of the shows I make time to listen to. So I love to be a guest here. So thanks. Oh, I appreciate that. And I've been on your show a, a couple of times, but I got to ask, how are things going over at Every Rom-Com these days? Well, we are still plugging away. Um, it is definitely a lot of work, so we've been a little bit... We haven't been releasing episodes quite as often as we used to, but we're in our high school movies series right now, and that's been a lot of fun. And some of the movies that may be... Or some of the episodes that may be coming out when this episode is released, I think will probably be about around our Netflix teen rom-coms. So we'll be doing like To All the Boys I've Loved Before, Alex Strangelove, and also Grease and Valley Girl are going to be coming up in that series. So I'm really excited about that. And we've got some really cool guests as well for some of those episodes. Awesome Valley Girl. I'm looking forward to that one. I have to rewatch that before I listen to that episode because I haven't watched it in a very long time. Yeah. And that's actually going to segue then too into our LA stories, kind of a mini series of like rom-com set in Los Angeles, which we've already covered a lot of those because there's a ton of movies, you know, set in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. But we've got a few more that I'm really excited to get into as well. So yeah. All right. Cool. Yeah. It seems like most of the rom-coms take place in either LA or New York. It just seems like easy choices for <laughs> filmmakers. Yeah, I mean, there's Chicago, there's Seattle as well. But yeah, a lot of them are in those two areas for sure. Well, normally this is where I'd ask about your favorite films, but we talked about some of your favorite films just over a year ago on episode 93 when we talked top five rom-coms. So if you're interested in Jen's favorite films, go listen to that episode afterwards. Instead of that, I'm going to ask, uh, what are some of the best films that you've seen lately? Okay, so it's interesting because um, I went back and listened. We actually didn't cover my favorite films in general. We did talk oh, about some of my favorite. Yeah, we talked about some of my favorite horror movies. But I'm going to oh. limit myself, nevertheless, and I'll, I want to talk about just like two movies that are that I really enjoy. One is a more recent viewing, and one is something I've loved for a long time. Cool. And the more recent viewing is I just saw in theaters this past weekend. I did not Barbenheimer like everybody else. <laughs> I, I went and saw Past Lives, um, which was released this year, written and directed by Celine Song. And she's a first-time feature director. And I was just incredibly impressed by this movie. It's about um, these young Korean students who are on the cusp of kind of falling in love. And then one of them immigrates with her family to Canada. And then the movie follows kind of like their sort of friendship over the years after she's immigrated and also like the kind of feelings that they still kind of have for each other. And what I really loved about this movie is there are a lot of movies out there about love. I cover a lot of them, but it's kind of rare when you see a movie that's so nuanced and so thoughtful about love between people and about all the layers it can have, and about how it's not always going to work out even when it feels like it's destiny. And it's it's just a beautiful film. It's so well written. Uh, the two main performers in the movie, um, Greta Lee and Tao Yu, they are so good. 
I really hope that they're like in contention when it comes to the Oscars. Um, and I hope that the film still has resonance by that point because I was incredibly impressed. And I'd really look forward to seeing more from Celine Song. Just love that movie. I don't know. Have you had a chance to see it yet? I have not. It's on my list of things to see. Uh, I've seen plenty of people giving it uh, heaps of praise, and I really am interested in watching it. Yeah, you know, you know, just films in the area of love and romance are definitely always going to catch my eye. Sure. Uh, yeah. And then one other film I just want to talk about, because we I love horror films, and we did get to talk about some horror films, but a movie I love to recommend to people, which very few people have seen, is Passion Fish from 1992. Hmm. And that's written and directed by John Sayles. In my opinion, it is John Sayles' best film, and it stars Mary McDonnell, Alfre Woodard, and David Strathairn. And the story is kind of like this uh, soap opera star, like she becomes a paraplegic from an accident and moves back to her like family home in Louisiana. And she's really depressed. She goes through all these nurses. And finally, Alfred Woodard shows up as a nurse who can finally like deal with her and get her to kind of be serious about getting better. And it doesn't sound like it would be like the most amazing film just based on that. But like the dialogue is fantastic. It's actually very funny, despite being a drama. And the acting is so good. I mean, these are some of the best actors of their generation in this movie. And a lot of people haven't seen this movie. I recommend it to anybody. Just go and find Passion Fish. I think it is streaming right now. Fantastic film. Oh, and one other thing I love about it, actually, I just have to say, uh, John Sayles is really good at capturing place in a lot of his movies. And I love the Cajun and Zydeco music in this movie. I love the Louisiana scenery in this movie. So beautiful. So yeah, one of my favorites. All right, Passion Fish. That's one that I've never heard of. And so I just looked it up on Letterboxd, and your review is the the first one that comes <laughs> up for me because we're friends on Letterboxd. And uh, high praise, five stars. All right, I'll have to check that out. Since your last appearance on the show, I know we, we kind of went back and forth with some topics. Why don't you tell the listeners what you landed on and why you landed on this topic today? Yeah, so, I mean, we are recording right now in the summertime. And the summertime is my favorite time of the year. Uh, it's my favorite season. I love the activities that go along with it. I love a summer romance. And so the, the topic I came up with was great summer movies. And of course, you can like think of a summer movie in several different ways. You can think of a summer movie as something that's set in summer or that evokes summer. But we also have, you know, the concept of the big summer blockbuster. So a lot of like these big successful movies come out in summer. It's a time we all look forward to like going to the movies and seeing things. I used to work at the movies in the summer, so I remember that excitement. Nice. Yeah, five summers I worked in movie theaters, so I was there. And and yeah, so it just evokes a lot for me, the idea of a summer movie. And I think we agreed that our lists could combine a little of all of those elements. Is that right? Yeah, the way I kind of went into this, because five great summer movies, you can, you can really kind of work with that however you want to. So for my list, I sat there and I thought about what reminds me of summer. And then I chose each film based on five different summer categories for myself. Ooh. So when I think about summer, I think about these five things first. And those five things were kind of the, how I whittled down my list because there are so many amazing yeah. films out there that you could choose that remind you of summer or take place in summer, like you said. And so I had to whittle them down somehow, and that's how I did it. I just chose five different verticals for summer and, and the memories that it evokes within me, and that's how I chose mine. And there's a 
variety of different things on my list because of it. Nice. And I bet you're going to end up shoring up some of the holes in my list, like some of the places where I had to put things in their honorable mentions. And I was just really sad about that because <laughs> there's a few categories I missed. And I was like, oh, on that. So yeah, that's good. I hope so, because there are a couple of categories that I missed as well. Because, you know, it's tough when you only have five spots, but I've got five good honorable mentions on my list, too. I'm sure you have you'll you'll probably have some on your honorable mentions list that I didn't even think of. Oh, and I got to say one more thing. So um, the top of my honorable mentions is going to be a movie that I would have originally put on this list except that I talked about it on our five best rom-coms episode. And I didn't want to talk about the same movie twice. So I thought I'll just put it on the honorable mentions. I'll give something else a little spotlight instead. Sure. I actually thought about doing that with one of my picks, but uh, it it was just too perfect for this list. Mm. I had put it on the top of one of my lists before, but it was a long time ago and I will get there when I get there. Jen, you ready to talk summer movies? Yes, I'm very excited to talk summer movies. You know what's gonna happen? Right, well, you are the guest, so I'm going to leave it up to you whether you want to go first or you want me to go first. You know, I think I'm in the mood to go first this time. Yeah, let's do it. Let's okay, hear it. For my fifth position, I decided to choose a movie that uh, not only like represents summer to me and evokes it, but I was actually working in a movie theater the summer this movie came out. And it was like one of the big two movies in the theaters that summer. Um, I come from the Midwest, and in the summertime, it's also tornado season. So in honor of that, I'm choosing 1996's Twister as my number five movie. Nothing else in nature it's starting to turn. can match its raw power, its brute force, its howling intensity, its uncontrollable fury. On May 10th, it's coming! the producers of Jurassic Park and the director of Speed bring you face to face with Twister. Rated PG-13 starts Friday, May 10th. Awesome. This is I don't think this has ever made a list on this show. Really? No. That kind of that actually kind of surprises me. I mean, I know it's not necessarily high art, but I just love Twister. I mean, Okay, so I'll get right into it. I think Twister is one of the perfect summer movies. It really has like everything you want out of a summer blockbuster. It's got the action. It's got the special effects. It's got this ensemble team working together. And it's got a romance in it, which of course appeals to me. Um, when I was working in theaters, we got this movie. It came out on May 20th of the year. And it stayed in our biggest auditorium the entire summer until... Independence Day knocked it out on July 3rd. <laughs> nice. And yeah, and then Twister kind of lingered in the theater for most of the rest of the summer. I don't know if this is a Midwestern thing, if we just loved it so much because we're like, tornadoes, we recognize that. <laughs> or if it was like that way across the country, but it was like huge. And a lot of my memories actually from the summer of 1996 are sitting in an auditorium on my break, like eating a McDonald's hamburger while I watch a cow get carried away by a tornado. <laughs> It's a great movie. For people who don't know about it, it's uh, directed by Jan de Bont, who also did, of course, Speed. It's written by Michael Crichton and Anne-Marie Martin, and it stars Bill Paxton and Helen Hunt. And it, there's a whole bunch of other great actors in here, too. We got, like, Carrie Elwes, we got Philip Seymour Hoffman, Jamie Gertz, like a whole ensemble team there. 
And it's basically about a group of storm chasers and tornado researchers. They're trying to place their invention in the path of a tornado so it will be sucked up and the sensors inside will give them better readings of what's going on inside tornadoes. When I put it like that, it doesn't sound exciting, but it totally is, okay? Like, do you remember seeing this when it first came out in the theaters? Like, I was so impressed at the time by the effects in this movie. Oh, yeah, I was I was 15, and I certainly saw it in the theater. I loved it. It's one of those tapes that my mom bought on VHS. She rarely bought movies, but she needed to own this one. I remember the ride uh, at... What, Universal Studios? And then I even remember seeing it like a year ago, and I still think it holds up. Yeah, no, like we actually did an episode on Twister for every rom-com because it does have that romantic story in it. And I, in researching it, I found out that they specially made a different look for each tornado, like that had kind of a theme for that scene and that was ramping up the tension. And they also had a different sound design for each tornado. So this was like really thoughtfully put together by Jan de Bont and his team. Um, I mean, I don't think Jan de Bont was always so thoughtful with his, um, with his stunt work, unfortunately, because people <laughs> were injured on the set of this movie. Yeah. But the, the look of the movie is fantastic. Um, And it it really evokes summer for me in several ways. I mean, there is the tornado aspect of it. Like as a Midwesterner, I've spent a lot of time in basements, you know, with the radio on waiting to come upstairs. So that, Mm. that, you know, that does something for me. But also so much of the movie takes place outside, takes place in cornfields. You've got that beautiful scene at the drive-in movie. Okay, I think that is, to me, that is one of the most beautiful shots in any kind of action film. Because... They're watching The Shining. They're watching maybe one of the most terrifying scenes from The Shining at the drive-in movie where Jack Nicholson bursts through the door. But then this even more terrifying, like, wonder of nature, like, smashes through the screen and everybody runs and screaming from the the movie. And I think that's just such a beautiful use of a movie within a movie. And it evokes something about summer. And it evokes something about summer and horror. Like, we're having fun in the summer. We're enjoying ourselves. And when you have something interrupt that, it seems even more stark than it might in the winter or the fall, I think. I don't know. Does that speak to you at all? Oh, yeah, of course. The chemistry between Paxton and Hunt apparently was not great off <laughs> offset, like when the cameras were not rolling. But they come off as a really amazing struggling couple in this movie, even though they're not like officially together when the movie starts. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, Jan de Bont really balances romance and action better than... Almost anyone, I think. And I love this is also a summer blockbuster with a strong female lead. Like Helen Hunt is so good in this role. And it, and the movie makes time for her to have quiet moments as well. She's not always just in an action moment. And I think if more action movies did that, they would have a deeper resonance with wider audiences. That That's my opinion. Yeah, that's a great pick. Like I said, I saw it. I think I saw it last June. I saw it in Mexico. We were in Cancun and, and it was like late at night. Twister was on. And when Twister's on, it's one of those movies that if it's on, I'm probably going to watch it from whatever point it's at. I totally forgot that Philip Seymour Hoffman was in there. Bill Paxton's amazing. Obviously, everybody remembers the cow scene, but almost any scene where they're driving to or from a tornado is exciting. Yeah. And like, I will say that the um, actual tornado safety in this movie is terrible. Like, don't use this movie (laughs) as an example of what to do in a tornado. You can go ahead and listen to our episode on the movie and we actually give you some real life tornado safety tips because, yeah, (laughs) woo. (laughs) But I love this movie. Yeah. Being from San Francisco, we don't deal with tornadoes really ever. Uh, I've only been in one tornado situation when I was working in the Midwest once. 
and I got stuck in a target and, uh, you know, all the sirens were going off. I didn't know what the hell was going on, but I just followed where everybody else was going and they had a little tornado shelter place in the back of the uh, back of the target. And I sat there for 30 minutes until it passed. Yep. Yep. It's better to have a basement, but that'll do. That'll do. Anyway, Twister. I love it. Yeah, there you go. All right. Twister at number five. My number five is baseball related. When I think about summer, I think about baseball. My relationship with baseball, I don't think I've ever really talked about on this show, but I loved it starting at age maybe eight. And I played baseball from that age all the way up through high school. And during the summer, it was one of those times where if there was not a baseball game on TV, I was outside pitching against the garage. I know that my neighbors Mm. absolutely hate me because I lived in a suburb. I know that garage door definitely hated me, (laughs) but just constant pound, pound, pound against the garage door until my arm couldn't take it anymore. And then that's when I went inside and played baseball related video games because that was like my entire life. So I was 12 years old and cue the Sandlot from 1993. I want you to make some friends this summer. They were nine great kids having one great summer. They'll become friends. Just stand there and stick your glove out in the air. I'll take care of it. They'll become a team. Oh, yeah, all right. And one of them. You're the best. Will become a legend. The Sandlot, rated PG. I could have gone with tons of baseball movies, and I considered knocking this off my list because it had been number one on top five sports movies. But you know what? Just nothing quite feels like the summer like the Sandlot does. I even had one of the actors on this program to do a top five list because I just I love this movie so much. For those who have not seen The Sandlot, it's about this kid, Scotty Smalls, and he has just moved with his mom and stepdad into the San Fernando Valley in the summer of 62, and he finds himself taken under the wing of Benny the Jet Rodriguez, the star player on the neighborhood Sandlot baseball team, which is less than an official team and more of a group of ragtag kids who just love playing baseball and act like kids did when I was little. Hmm. And the film's not just about baseball. It's about the camaraderie between those kids and then the adventures that they get into in the summer when you couldn't play baseball or when it was time to put the gloves down. Those third-party neutral spaces that really aren't abundant anymore that kids used as destinations. You get a great scene of the 4th of July as they use the fireworks lighting for a night game. They hit the local public pool for a chance at a kiss with Wendy Peppercorn. (laughs) And they must face the beast in order to retrieve an autographed Babe Ruth baseball. Uh, There's a quote from this movie that I just love. Heroes get remembered, but legends never die. Follow your heart, kid, and you'll never go wrong. So, yeah, I really love this this movie. Now, this also reminds me of Summer, and I told this story way back when I did Top 5 Sports Movies, but that was a long time ago, and so if you haven't listened to that one, I'll just tell it here real quick. This is a movie that uh, was, number one, the first movie that I was ever allowed to go to without my mom. My mom actually, like, dropped me and my brother off at the theater. And the reason that my brother was with me that summer to watch it is because the girl that I was supposed to go with stood me up. Oh, And so uh, I was sad, but my brother went with me. And I mean, by the time this movie was over, I had forgotten all about Angela Carrier. (laughs) That's a great story. And this is indeed one of the holes that you are shoring up in um, my list because I considered a number of baseball movies. 
and they kind of fell off and yeah this is not the one i was going to use but by the way i actually have not seen this movie yet really? but you're you're making me want to see it you're you're making me want to see it you should have said you're killing me smalls right after i said that <laughs> yes it's endlessly quotable. Oh, I think you would love this movie. It's just kids being kids, and it's so relatable. Yeah. Don't watch the second one. They even made a third one. Just watch this one. So your number five movie was set in the 60s, and my number four movie is set in the 60s. Uh, my number four pick is a romantic coming-of-age story about young women on vacation. It's the movie Shag from 1989. They were the last days of innocence. <laughs> Any y'all like to dance? No, thank you. For a country. Hell, this is all for man. I mean, look at the guy's face. <laughs> He's desperate. For a generation. Get on your shagging shoes. For four best friends who wanted it to last. Turn on the radio! I'm not allowed to go to Mother's Beach. Where y'all from? Nothing going to happen between us. I don't know this movie. Yeah, this is another one that not a lot of people have seen. So this movie's directed by Zelda Baron. It's written by Lanier Laney, Terry Sweeney, and Robin Swicord. And it stars Bridget Fonda, Phoebe Cates, Annabeth Gish, and Paige Hanna. And then they've got male co-stars um, Scott Coffey, Robert Ressler, and Tyrone Power Jr. And this is basically a story of four friends in the South who they're about to go off to college or get married and they go on a road trip together to Myrtle Beach to like kind of have this like one last fun weekend together. Now, this movie is not probably like the highest quality movie of all the movies I've selected. Granted, I really love it, but there are problems with it. But it is for me probably the most summary of all the movies I've selected. So it takes place, you know, at Myrtle Beach, which is like a tourist destination. Uh, they spend a lot of time on the beach. They spend time on like fishing piers. They spend time dancing at drive-in restaurants. They spend time They spend time on carnival rides. They spend time cruising in cars. There's dancing. There's a wild party. And there is so much summer romance in this movie. So, and, and for some reason too, for me, and I don't know whether this is the movies that did this to me or whether the 1960s was just great for this, but the music and the costumes, the clothes of the 1960s always really evoke summer for me in a way that like other eras don't. The music is great. It's a lot of like Motown music and it, there's dancing the whole way through. Shag actually refers to a dance that the people do in the movie. And it just gives me that wonderful summer romance feeling. Now I am gonna put a big content warning out for this movie. So it's set in the South in the 1960s and I think they did this for authenticity's sake, but there is use of the Confederate flag several times in the movie. So there's a scene where Bridget Fonda does like a sexy dance with a Confederate flag because she's <laughs> auditioning to be in like the Miss Sun Queen competition. I'm pretty sure this is being played for humor because like it's ridiculous that she's doing a sexy dance with a Confederate flag. But if you don't want to see the Confederate flag anywhere near your movie screen, then you would best skip the movie. 
Um, if this is, however, something you can deal with, like, I don't think the movie's trying to sell any kind of glorified version of the South. If it's something you can deal with as, like, something that's visually there, I do recommend this movie for women especially because there are so few really good ensemble movies made for women of this age where it really centers them, where each of the women get their own story, and where you get to see women who are such great actors all working together in a teen movie. Like, it's just a very authentic, like... It, the way the women speak in the movie is very authentic. The way they talk about sex and relationships and their future and their anxieties about it is so great. And each woman has her own character arc, her own story, and they don't all involve men. Some of them do, though. And as you know, as you can tell from my podcast, I'm a sucker for romance. And I think the romance in this movie is great, too. Phoebe Cates, I don't think, has ever been hotter, you know, and that includes Fast Times at Ridgemont High. <laughs> and... um Annabeth Gish is so wonderful in this. She she did not have a super, you know, prominent career, but she was great in so many movies in the 1980s. And this is one of them that you should definitely check out. A few other things I want to say, like the dancing and the music in the movie are both great. It has the same choreographer as Dirty Dancing, Kenny Ortega. The music provided by the Voltage Brothers, who play the band in the movie, is super great too. Their versions of uh, 60 Minute Man and Stay are both really highlights for me. So yeah, despite some problematic aspects of the film, I just, I love this movie. I've watched it like a million times. Other women I know who, who found this movie in the 80s are also kind of obsessed with it. I know someone who just recently got rid of her VHS tape of the movie and she hadn't had a VCR in like a decade. So <laughs> it's just one of those things you kind of hold on to, you rewatch. And if you're a young woman, I think it can be quite meaningful. And there's a few just quintessential summer scenes in this movie. There's a scene where Phoebe Cates is hanging out with her love interest on a dock while they're fishing and they're slowly falling in love. And there's this great beach scene with Annabeth Gish and Scott Coffey, who plays her love interest. And they're on the beach and they're taking one of those like, are you experienced like sex tests that people would take when they're like 13 years old sure. and asking each other questions. And both of those scenes just really evoke a certain summer mood and that romantic tension right before people fall in love and just delicious. That's what I associate with summer so much. So there you go. Number four is Shag S H A G. All right. I've not heard of that film, so I'll have to seek that out. Gosh, it almost feels like that's a great lead-in to one of my other picks, but I'm going to have to save that one for my number three because I, I just think it needs to be higher on my list. <laughs> sure. One of the things that reminds me of summer were those summers where I was old enough not to have a babysitter and young enough that I didn't have any responsibilities. And you just spent the whole day sometimes messing around with your buddies making forts i don't know if you ever had that experience where you just kind of like building stuff and and hanging out in the woods maybe not in the woods as much but definitely building stuff yeah like maybe hanging out in like a small ravine i've done that yeah yeah we never really had woods either around here but we like when my dad moved into his house there was developments going up and so there was a lot of wood being thrown around and there was a creek there, and me, my brother, and two kids across the street, we made just this amazing fort over the course of this weekend. And I remember coming back two weekends later to my dad's house, hoping that it was still around so we could mess around in it for another weekend. That Those are the feelings that are invoked when I watched The Kings of Summer from 2013. Have you seen this one before? No, I've actually, you've got, you've stumped me. I haven't heard of this one, so that's exciting. 
Um, you're, I think you're going to be sold by just the cast list alone. I'll get to that in a second. It's about these two kids, Joe and Patrick. They're two teens, and they just started summer vacation, but they are so annoyed with the restrictions of their home lives that they find a nearby clearing in their town, and they decide to build a house so they can have their own home life. And there's also a, a third wheel in here, a very unique kid named Biagio, who neither of them know, and he just tags along, and they're like who's this kid? I don't know. We don't know what kind of potential he has. So they just kind of let him hang around. They do this. They, so they make this very crude house and they begin living in this house in the woods for weeks. They don't tell their parents where they are. They essentially have run away. Their parents, of course, are worried sick and they're reported missing. And the film deals with that along with one thing that can get between a trio of boys. And that is, of course, a girl. Mm -hmm. Now, the first thing I want to point out here is, like I said, the cast. So this was made back in 2013. But now when you watch this, there are so many household names in the supporting cast list. The three kids are played by people who you might not know by name, but you would definitely know them because you've seen them in something. Nick Robinson plays Joe. This was his debut. A kid named Gabriel Basso plays Patrick. And then another named Moises Arias plays Biagio. And like I said, you've you've definitely seen them in things if you look at their filmographies. But listen to the supporting cast members in this movie. So Nick Offerman plays mm. Joe's dad. Erin Moriarty, who uh, plays Starlight in The Boys. She plays the girl that starts getting between the guys. Megan right. Mullally plays one of the moms. Allison Brie, Thomas Middleditch, Tony Hale, Hannibal Burris, Kumail Nanjiani, and wow. Marilyn Rajskub, who plays Chloe on 24. There's just so many people in here. There's so much to like about the movie itself. It's very, very funny. Kumail Nanjiani is in one scene, and he shows up to the house as a Chinese food delivery driver, and his exchange with Nick Offerman around why the wontons are so big is a great tone check for the film. What's your name? My American name is Gary. You ever have one of those days, Gary? What kind of days? The kind I'm having right now. I don't know what kind of day you're having. Where you feel like somebody's pissing in your face all day long. Is that good or bad? Bad. Bad. Gary, every time. You see those wontons, Gary? You see the size of them? Mm-hmm. Those wontons are too big, my friend. Everybody loves those. People ask us for the recipe. We won't provide it. It's part of our training, how to deal with people who want the recipe too bad. Oh. We have a phrase we have to repeat. What is that? We won't provide it. I can see the value of these now. I can have the kids from the neighborhood come over and bounce up and down on them. Oh, like sarcasm, a, I like get a it. bouncy house. The poor man's wit. My question for you, Gary, is how do you want me to eat these with my normal human mouth? Do you want me to unhinge my jaw like an anaconda? Should I put this in my belly and lay out in the sun for Dad, two months? Digesting it? My God! My God. He's a poor guy. Yeah, and maybe you should get them forks in the house so your dad doesn't have to unhinge his stupid jaw. We're done here. And for the record, your wontons are way too big. I can eat them. Just give them to me. Night, I, we're not trying to eat those. And the character Biagio is somebody who is going to instantly win you over. He goes from being this teenage oddity to somebody whose loyalty is something really special. And then the Joe and Patrick characters have a believable arc as these two teens just trying to figure things out with the opposite sex. The music is really great. Uh, MGMT's The Youth is the most well-known song, but there's a great score by the Skywalkers as well. 
Um, this was written by Chris Galetta, who hasn't written anything else since, but is currently working on a sequel to the Ryan Reynolds Pokemon Detective Pikachu film. Okay. And <laughs> yeah, random. And it was directed by Jordan Vock Roberts, who uh, went on to do one of the King Kong movies. And I don't think he's done anything other than those two films. But it's a really sweet summer movie that will make you think of those times when you didn't have responsibilities and you could just do whatever you wanted all day long until it was dinner time. Nice. You know, it's the funny thing is when you started talking about people going off in the woods to build things for at first, I was like, oh, he's going to talk about it. So that's interesting. Oh. <laughs> it's something that's been in a lot of these movies um, about youth. And I, I like that. I like that theme. Yeah. Yeah. I tried to stay with a pretty upbeat selections here. There's <laughs> one that, that will kind of curveball that. But uh, yeah, Kings of Summer is my number four. Okay, so my number three selection is taking a big um, veer away from my number four selection. And the funny thing is they were both released on the exact same day, it turns out, oh. July 21st, 1989. So my number three choice is a movie that could be on, you know, any number of best of lists, right? Like it is, well, you'll find out in a minute, it is one of the great American films. I think the same way there's the great American novel, you might even make an argument that this is the great American film. And this movie is Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing. From Spike Lee. On the hottest day of the summer. Woo! It's going to be a scorcher today. You can do nothing. You the man. No, you the man. No, you the man. No, you the man. No, you the man. Right there. You can do something. Trust me. Mookie, the last time I trusted you, we ended up with a son. Or you can. Do the right thing. Rated R. So, yeah, you don't automatically think summer movie necessarily when you think of do the right thing until you watch it again and you notice exactly how prominent the season is in the movie. Uh, the whole movie goes, like the whole movie, throughout the whole movie, we're hearing about how there's a heat wave in New York City. It's like the hottest day of the summer. And this whole movie takes place over that 24 hour period of this hottest day of the summer. And Ernest Dickerson, the cinematographer, really worked with Spike Lee to create the mood of the summer throughout the movie, including just like uh, making a color story that was like reds and oranges and yellows and avoiding blue and green tones altogether. Like, I really want to shout out Ernest Dickerson here because when we um, did She's Gotta Have It for our podcast, I really kind of looked at which films he had worked on with Spike Lee and he worked on the first six films with Spike Lee and they have such a different kind of look and feel in some ways from the subsequent films Spike Lee did. I think Ernest Dickerson contributed so much to that creative relationship. So here you have a, f a beautiful example of his work in Do the Right Thing. Um, for like the few people out there who haven't seen it, uh, Do the Right Thing is set in, a Bro in Brooklyn in the Bed-Stuy neighborhood. Um, it takes place over 24 hours and there's a lot of tension in the neighborhood at the moment. The main tension is between Danny Aiello's character, who plays Sal, the owner of Sal's Pizzeria, and Giancarlo Esposito's character, Bugging Out, who comes into the shop one day and demands to know why there are only pictures of Italian people on the walls and why there aren't any pictures of, the black, of black people on the wall, since all of Sal's customers are black. So this like kind of starts out as like an everyday type of argument, but eventually the tension in the neighborhood escalates into tragedy. And I'm not going to talk about what that tragedy is in case you haven't seen the film, because you should really experience it for yourself. But this is a movie that is exactly as relevant today as it was in 1989. 
sadly. This movie really takes on all the cultural issues of 1989 and today, like issues of police brutality, issues of gentrification, issues of lack of representation. And it really like puts them all in a movie without you ever feeling like you're being hit over the head by like some kind of like didactic lecture. It's just so beautifully wrought. You're also being entertained the whole time you're watching the movie. You're getting to know the different people in the neighborhood. You're getting to know their relationships. There's moments of humor. And there are all a lot of moments, too, of just summer fun and summer, like, appeal. Like, people are using the water, the fire hydrants, the water from the hi fire hydrants to play in. People are socializing on the streets. Children are getting, like, ice treats and ice cream truck treats. Um, there's some really sexy scenes in the movie. There's a scene where Spike Lee's character, Mookie, runs an ice cube down his girlfriend's body. The girlfriend's played by Rosie Perez. That is an incredibly, you know, sensual, sexy scene in this movie. And there's just some beautiful visceral moments where you can just like feel summer. Like there's this great shot where Rosie Perez, put, you see Rosie Perez's face like coming down into a bowl of ice water. And it's just it's a beautiful evocative film about summer as well as being this movie that gives you like this message about where America was at with race relations in 1989 and where we still sadly pretty much are today. When's like, I don't know when the last time you saw it was, but like every time I watch it, it's still just as relevant and it still brings up new ideas and new levels. The last time I saw this was when the criterion disc first released, which I don't remember when it came out. But it, they put out a great package for this. It has a documentary on there from 1989. It has a audio commentary with Spike Lee and Dickerson on there. It's got all kinds of like interviews and special features. If this is going to be your first time watching Do the Right Thing, I think it is also on 4K, but that Criterion Blu-ray adds a lot of special features that are totally worth checking out. That's great. I really, I think I will check that out at some point, though. I, at, at some point. I don't think I actually have seen it before. And there's just, yeah, there's just so much meaning and heft to this movie, but it also perfectly captures uh, a summer day. And kind of the, the kind of downside of summer too, is that like, if you don't have air conditioning, if you're kind of like on city streets, it can make you irritable. It can rate, it can ramp up tensions, like problems that might've seemed small. If you were feeling cooler, suddenly feel a lot harder to deal with and problems can occur. So, and that was definitely one of the intentions apparently that Spike Lee and Ernest Dickerson had in setting it in this kind of situation. So really, I mean, it should be number one on any list really, but like, since I'm also weighing my my personal feelings of like what evokes summer for me, it's, it's at number three. So there you are. Sure, Spike Lee's not one of my favorite directors, but I gotta tell you, this guy certainly knows how to shoot those summers and make them feel authentic. Mm. Do the right thing, does it like you said, but on my short list, because originally I was thinking, well, I'll be clever and every one of my titles will have the word summer in the title. <laughs> I almost had Summer of Sam on my list because that does the same thing with summers. It just makes it seem so hot and unbearable, but at the same time, really fun to be outside in 100 degree heat. Yeah, and also Crooklyn. Crooklyn's another great Spike Lee summer movie. He just, I guess he liked it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. Do the right thing. I, you know, I, I have the Criterion disc. I might have to watch that later today. Okay, my number three. I thought about putting this at my number four. I thought about switching it after you talked about Shag, but I just had to have it higher up on the list. This is my summer vacation slash romance pick. 
As a kid, we didn't really go on very many summer vacations. We didn't have a lot of money. And during the summer, my mom was a single mom. So it's not like she could just take off work and take me and my brother to somewhere exotic or a beach or something like that. So those were always things that I just saw in movies. And for this summer vacation slash romance pick, I'm actually curious to know if you've seen this movie because it seems like something would be right up your alley. It's from 1971. It's a film called Summer of 42. And that house up there, that was her house. And nothing from that first day I saw her and no one that has happened to me since has ever been as frightening is confusing for no person I've ever known has ever done more to make me feel more sure more insecure more important and less significant that was back when summer seemed forever I wish somebody would invade this dopey island hey Oski it's that lady again no, that's a hole in my viewing still and one that I mean to correct at some point. So I can't wait to hear you talk about it here. So this film is based on the memoirs of screenwriter Herman Rauscher, uh, also known as Hermie, and it follows three virgin 15-year-old boys during their summer of 1942 on Nantucket Island. So there's, like I said, three boys. One's named uh, Oski, and he is the one that's obsessed with sex. And then there's Benji, who's kind of this introverted nerd type of dude. And then there's the main character, Hermie. And Hermie falls in love with a young woman named Dorothy, whose husband has gone off to fight in World War II. She is much older than him. Now, on one hand, this has all the trappings of coming-of-age sex films, your American Pies, your Porkies. But on the other hand, these feel like real teens. They're playing pranks on each other. They're roughhousing. They're trying to show off for the girls on the beach, yet they have no idea what they're doing. And of course, being obsessed with sex. Going so far as to steal Benji's dad's medical journals to have a look at the naked female body, which <laughs> apparently is what you did in the days before, like printed pornography and of course the internet. All that being said, this film is not a comedy. It's not played for laughs. The kids are very realistic. And because of that, the tone feels very romantic and very nostalgic. When you watch Hermie in this clearly one-sided romance, you think you know how it's going to end. And at the same time, it's breaking your heart, but it also makes you oddly hopeful, which is helped by the beautiful wispy piano score by Michelle Legrand. Uh, Roucher wrote the film in the 50s during his tenure as a TV writer, but in his words, he couldn't give the script away. And then in the 1960s, he he uh, met Robert Mulligan, who wrote and um, actually, I don't know if he wrote it, but he directed To Kill a Mockingbird. Hmm. And Mulligan took it to Warner Brothers, where he basically said, we can shoot this movie for $1 million, and Warner approved it. But they had so little faith in the film becoming a box office success that they shied away from paying Roger for the script and instead promised him 10% of the gross. Big mistake. <laughs> Big mistake for Warner Brothers, because this was made for a million dollars. It made $32 million. Uh, it was a huge success, netted, netted Roucher $3.2 million. And because of the success, they asked him to write a book about it, which became one of the best-selling novels of the 1970s and required 23 reprints between 71 and 74 alone wow. to keep up with customer demand. It was nominated for four Academy Award nominations, 
uh, best original music, best cinematography, best editing, and best screenplay. And it won best original music. It's just a really sweet, really gentle movie. And if you just look up the title theme on YouTube, the comments, I, I really try to stay away from YouTube comments, but the comments on the the score for this movie are so nostalgic and so wonderful. I highly recommend reading through them as you as you listen to the score. Uh, it's it's one of those tracks where people are just recounting their own summer vacations and their own romances through the comments. Mm-hmm. And it was just so cool to read that while I was researching for for this pick. But Summer of 42, I watched it recently. I watched it maybe six months ago. And it was one of those films where I was like, well, I can put this. There there are certain TV shows and certain films where I feel like, well, I can watch this while I'm doing something else. And I quickly realized that I don't want to do anything else. I just wanted to to see what happened to these characters. So (laughs) highly recommended Summer of 42 from 1971 at number three. So my number two pick is the one that I'm most kind of worried that you have also picked for your list. All right. So I'm going to go ahead and spit it out and we'll see if we both have it on our list. It is uh, 1975's Jaws. Also my number two. There is a creature alive today who has survived millions of years of evolution without change, without passion, and without logic. It lives to kill a mindless eating machine. It will attack and devour anything. It is as if God created the devil and gave him jaws. Roy Scheider, Robert Shaw. Richard Dreyfuss. You're going to need a bigger boat. From the best-selling novel, Jaws. Rated PG. Maybe too intense for younger children. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So how do we do this then? (laughs) Uh, Why don't you go first and I will fill in the blanks. All right. This is this is great. Like not only do we pick the same movie, but it is exactly the same position (laughs) on the list. That's does that happen often? No, not often at all. That's amazing. Okay, so um, Jaws has to be on this list, in my opinion, just because Jaws is the movie that kind of brought forth the idea of the summer blockbuster in the first place, Um, being the first movie to ever gross more than $100 million domestically, and then kind of, you know, of course, creating the trend where people were trying to replicate its success and make more of these big high concept action movies. I'm sure, you know, you know, Jason, you probably know that your listeners probably for the most part know it. But if you don't know it, Jaws was the beginning, uh, for better or for worse. Lines around the theater. Yeah. It was released uh, June 20th, 1975, but I feel like its influence is very long. Uh, I was swimming this weekend with my husband, and I heard a kid who must have been like five years old, like in the water going, you know what I mean? Like people who probably haven't seen this movie still are influenced by this movie. Um, There would probably be no Shark Week without Jaws. You know, they're the Meg 2, let alone the Meg 1, like Sharknado, none of that would probably exist if Jaws hadn't caught in there first and really shown us the action potential of a shark movie. Um, And yet this movie is so much greater than that. Like, I'm sure it's probably been talked about on your show in some, like, uh, some way before, right? Yeah, I'm sure it's come up. It's I've never put it on a list, but I'm sure somebody else has put it on a list. 
Yeah, just the the greatness of this film for me is really in the script. It is um, unlike a lot of action movies where they just seem impatient to get to the next, you know, big set piece. This movie has so many sections where it really takes its time to develop the characters. Like the whole section from when they're showing each other their scars on the boat through when the USS Indianapolis monologue um, that Robert Shaw delivers to then like them drunkenly singing together. Like I bet if somebody tried to put that into a script today, it would get cut out like boring, too much, whatever. But it is essential to why this movie is a classic. It's a classic because it's not always hitting you over the head with action scene after action scene. You care about these characters. You want them to like get this shark. You want them to make it alive off of this boat. Um, If anyone actually hasn't seen this movie, basically we have... um, a character who's a big city cop played by Roy Scheider, who's just moved to Amity Island, this kind of small tourist town. And Shark has begun attacking people on the island at the same time that they're trying to have their July 4th tourism. So the mayor of the town and the business people of the town are not happy with him trying to shut down the beaches. So it becomes imperative that he finds this shark in the company of Quint, played by the aforementioned Robert Shaw, and Hooper, a scientist played by Richard Dreyfuss. And this cast is amazing. I was shocked that none of them were nominated for an Oscar. I guess the movie was like too commercial or whatever, right? Well, you'd think so, but it was also nominated for other awards. True. Yeah. But for me, like, it's like, literally, it's like they got Robert Shaw. It's like Robert Shaw isn't even an actor. It's like they just got this old sea captain off the street um, (laughs) of some small New England town and put him in the movie and was like, do your thing. You know what I mean? Yeah, he's great. Oh, I just like, I'll I'll shut up now. I want to let you talk a little bit more about why you chose this movie, too. So, well, you know, I had to have a summer blockbuster on my list because that's a huge part of summer. And so I went back and forth between three. I almost put Jurassic Park on there because, again, summer vacation gone wrong. Huge movie during that summer. I almost put Independence Day on here (laughs) because it deals with the 4th of July. But I had to go one. I had to go with Jaws because it has another element of summer that I just absolutely have great memories of. And that's being on the boat, being in the water. Where can I fill in the blanks here? Um, This is based on a novel by Peter Benchley. Although there are many differences to that novel, lots of subplots were completely cut out and the ending is much different. Mm. Uh, But I I, honestly, I think Jaws is a perfect movie. It's well written. And even in those kind of moments that audiences today might feel meandering, like you were talking about them singing, uh, getting drunk, uh, it still feels really tight. And it's very thrilling, although you rarely see the shark. It's got a very simple acutely effective score although that score has over time been iconic and ubiquitous like you said there's a five-year-old in in your (laughs) neighborhood doing it it's it's the same way everywhere like my kid knows that he's certainly never seen jaws but he knows that riff and of course it's it's directed by steven spielberg so you know that it is gonna be perfectly directed Uh, like you said it was widely regarded as the first summer blockbuster and it did win three academy awards it won editing it won score and it won sound It was nominated for Best Picture, but somehow curiously did not get Spielberg a Best Director nomination. Mm. Although, like, if you look at that year, you have, uh, let's see, Milos Foreman won for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. But also Fellini, Kubrick, Lumet, and Altman were all, (laughs) those were the other directors nominated. So very crowded. But like you said, Jaws kind of birthed every shark movie that we've seen (laughs) since then. 
it had what four three or four sequels three three sequels and the fourth is unwatchable but i like the second two (laughs) i like jaws 2 for its own thing and i actually really like jaws 3 because it's so cheesy Yeah, Jaws 3D is is one of those movies that is fun to watch with a crowd. Jaws 2, I think, is oh, it's it's a little, um, it's just not as good as Jaws, but it's still yeah, a, it's a fun movie. Anna has the, one of the best taglines ever, just when you thought it was safe to get back in the water. <laughs> uh, and then it had a whole pile of knockoffs in this shark exploitation genre that has exploded over time. Have you ever seen a good Jaws knockoff? Um, I would say Piranha, which is, oh, of course yeah. is not a shark, but I think Piranha is the best knockoff. And my other favorite shark movie is Deep Blue Sea. Not really a Jaws knockoff, but I love Deep Blue Sea as well. Yeah. Yeah, Piranha is great. And, um... The original Piranha. The original I'm going to put in. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, Piranha 3 Double D is really fun too. Really bloody and really fun. And uh, Tintorera is another Italian one that's really, really fun. Mm. Fun fact, too. uh, So after Jaws 2, they shopped the idea for a film called Jaws 3 People Zero. And (laughs) this was going to be a film that was written by National Lampoon. Oh, my God. It was going to be a comedy film based on somebody trying to uh, make a sequel to Jaws 2 that number one shit on Jaws 2 a bunch and then number two there was going to be a shark trying to stop the movie from getting made and uh I've I've not read the script but I've heard all about the script on um Best Movies Never Made it's another podcast with a Mm -hmm. couple of writers directors and they did Jaws 3 People Zero where they went through the script and read it and it is bonkers it's not good but uh, it is it definitely it, it would have been uh, something to see. Wow, that is something. <laughs> uh, I had to have Jaws on here. I think it's a it's a great it's not only just a great summer movie, but it's just one of the best, like tightest, well-directed films of all time. Yeah, basically, you put this in a Twitter poll with something Jaws wins almost every Twitter poll, I'll just say on film Twitter. So yeah. <laughs> it's, it's almost undefeated, I'd say. Yeah. Yeah. So a worthy entry at number two. All right, grand finale time. Jen Howell from every rom-com. What sits atop your five great summer movies list? All right, for my number one pick, we are going back to the land of summer romance. Um, And it's with a more recent movie, uh, Luca Guadagnino's Call Me By Your Name from 2017. I can show you around. That'd be great. Thank you. Is there anything you don't know? You only knew how little I know about the things that matter. You saying what I think you're saying? Call me by your name, rated R. I'm choosing Call Me By Your Name for a number of reasons. First of all, it does have the summer romance element. And romance is the thing I associate most with the summer. I've had summer romances. I feel more prone to romance in the summer. And I just think the two things go together so well. But this movie expresses summer like beyond just the plot. Like Luca Guadagnino is just a very visceral kind of sensual filmmaker. Like, he can make you, more than any director I've seen, really, 
feel the sort of physical sensations people might be feeling in the movie. And in my opinion, anyway, I feel like I can taste the fruit in his movie. I feel like I can feel what it's like to be in the stream or feel the mist come off of a waterfall. Um, when I watch a totally different movie by him, Suspiria, I can feel like that I'm in the rainy Berlin environment that he has in that movie or that the horrible body horror is happening to me, right? But in Call Me By Your Name, you're getting all these beautiful, sensual experiences of the summer. The entire film uh, takes place in 1983 in a villa in the Italian countryside. And not only are they in this villa, but the villa always has its windows open, its doors open. The outside is always kind of present in the inside in this movie. So you're hearing like the night noises through a window at night. Um, you're you just like you you're feel, you're seeing the breezes come in through the house. It never really feels like people are entirely inside, and I think that really contributes to the summer mood. And Luca Guadagnino is just films things so beautifully. You can tell he really cares about the aesthetics of his film, as well as the emotions. So for me, this is one of the top romantic films ever made. It's based on the novel by Andre Asimon, which is also one of the best romantic novels I've ever read. Um, James Ivory, of course, um, of Merchant Ivory, won the Oscar for his adaptation of this screenplay. And I think it really is truly one of the best adaptations of a book I've, I've ever seen. Um, you really just get the, the sense that you have in the book that you are young, that you are falling in love, that you're actually there. Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pause while I'm waxing poetically and, and ask if, if you've seen the movie, if you have the same impression of Guadagnino, maybe as this like sort of sensual director in any sense. I actually have not seen this movie and it's been on my list of things to watch. And it feels like, gosh, now it might be a little uncomfortable to watch with the army hammer factor, but I still do want to see it. The funny thing is, I like, I seriously, he disappears into the role for me. Like him and Chalamet are so good in this movie. Like, I don't think of them as the actors they are because Chalamet too has this kind of outsized personality, you know, like in a more positive way, but like you might think that you'd be constantly thinking, oh, there's Timothée Chalamet. But instead, I just really feel that they are the characters of Oliver and Elio. Like Elio's this young boy who's um, staying with his family at this villa. And Oliver is the student who's working for his father that comes to live with them. And at first, there's this kind of dynamic between them of they're not really talking to each other. And you get the feeling they might even have some hostility. But then you gradually realize that they are actually falling in love with each other. And this is, of course, the 1980s, where two men falling in love with each other, two boys falling in love with each other is not, you know, an acceptable thing. So it really adds this... Um, particular specific dynamic to what would otherwise be a more universal uh, story about summer love. But it does also still feel very universal. Like I said, I don't think I've ever read or seen a story that more evoked summer romance to me. Like I, I feel that I'm experiencing what they're experiencing when I read it and when I watch it. It's, it's just so beautiful. I feel like it's hard for me to speak intelligently almost about a movie that I feel so deeply about. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I do. Oh, yeah. And I also think the music in this movie is so evocative. Um, it's got classical music that's a little bit lighter um, that is there because Elio enjoys classical music. It's got the pop music of the summer of 83, both some things from the States and some music from Italy at the time. And then the original songs by Sufjan Stevens that are in the movie, they're just so romantic and wistful and they feel like summer. It just brings the whole mood together some more. And there are these beautiful, like the whole movie has just shot after shot after shot that make you feel like you're in like this lazy 
romantic summer. But there's a few shots in particular I love. There's a scene on a piazza where people are dancing to uh, Love My Way. And it just feels like, you know, having a party outside in the summer when you're finally kind of free to not be indoors. And then there's this other just great like little one-off where um, Elio and Oliver are hanging out by the pool and uh, Army, Ham Army Hammer's character Oliver is lying down by the pool and then just suddenly rolls into the pool. And <laughs> I don't know what it is about that, but I love it. It just evokes summer for me. And yeah, this is a great movie. Um, if you've been avoiding it for Army Hammer, I really try to give it a chance because it's just so beautiful and one of the best kind of like gay love stories that kind of we have in our canon. It's 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 gorgeous. All right. Call me by your name. I didn't know that Sufjan Stevens did music for this. That's got yeah. me excited. It's a beautiful soundtrack. I own the soundtrack as well. All right. Um, that, OK. Call me by your name. I got to I got to watch it. My number one. I had to go with a summer camp film. Nice. Because again, there's there are so many memories I have of summer camps at South School and baseball camp. I went down to San Bernardino for a couple of weeks one year for baseball camp. I love summer camps. My kid is in a swimming camp right now down in Mexico. Wow. Like there's summer camps are amazing. And I have a ton of choices for this column of summer. I mean, I could have went with Friday the 13th if I wanted to go <laughs> that route. Could have gone with sleepaway camp. If I wanted to go funny, I could have gone with meatballs. If I wanted to go with more sweet, I could have gone with Moonrise Kingdom. But I went with my absolute favorite. I don't think it's ever made a list on this show. And that's just a crime. So I had to put it at at number one here. It's one of my favorite comedies ever. And it's one that you have covered on your show. Oh. Wet Hot American Summer from 2001. This summer, take a trip back to 1981 with the special people who made summer camp unforgettable. <laughs> Guys aren't supposed to be out of your bunks. You're in trouble. The camp director. Four campers are stuck in the ropes course. I meant to tell you about that yesterday. Could you get to it now? The counselors. Wait for me, Abby Bernstein. Wait for me, my darling. Wait, wait, wait. I just want to take off my shirt. The kitchen staff. Finish up the taters. I'm going to go fondle my sweaters. Come on, what? You said you were going to go fondle your sweaters. No, I didn't. The water sports. Can I take out the Barbie bus? Sure. The nature hikes. Out! Out! And of course, who can forget the sex, the muggings, the cover-ups, the malaria, the psychotherapy. Hello. Yeah. <laughs> I love this movie. It's written by Michael Showalter and David Wayne, and it's directed by Wayne. This is an absurd, surreal comedy about the kids and counselors of Camp Firewood. It's set on the last day of camp in the hot summer of 1981. A group of counselors try to complete their unfinished business before the day ends and everybody goes back to the real world. At the center of the action is the camp director, Beth, played by Janine Garofalo, who struggles to keep order while she falls in love with the local astrophysics professor. <laughs> and he's busy trying to save the camp from a deadly piece of NASA's Skylab, which is quickly hurtling towards Earth. And there's a dangerous waterfall rescue, love triangles, misfits, cool kids, and talking vegetable cans. <laughs> and of course, all those questions will be re resolved at the talent show at the end of the day. Now, I know that I, I said Kings of Summer had an amazing cast. 
This one maybe even has a better cast. I mentioned Janine Garofalo. Yeah. David Hyde Pierce plays the uh, the astrophysics professor. He's so good in this role. Michael Showalter is great as Coop. Marguerite Moreau, who I think is an underrated actress, she is just really fantastic and really sexy in her role. Paul Rudd, Christopher Maloney, Molly Shannon, Amy Poehler, Ken Marino, Joe Lutruglio, Michael Ian Black, Bradley Cooper, Elizabeth (laughs) Banks, so many more. I was trying to think about what specific scene I wanted to highlight to sell this movie to people, I think it's going to be really hard because almost every scene is funny. Oh, I've got one. Can I, can I cut in? <laughs> yeah, let's hear the, it. The, the montage um, with, the, with the song where he's sort of training to like, you know. Oh, get... higher and higher. Oh, God, I love that so much. <laughs> Yeah. That song has made my playlist for sure. Um, yeah, there's a montage between Coop and Gene, who is uh, played by Christopher Maloney. He's the uh, he's the cook in the cafeteria, and it is just fantastic. It makes no sense, but it's just so fantastic. <laughs> there's a moment when the kids, the the camp counselors, head into town, uh... and that really tells you what kind of film you're watching. And that was when I knew that me and David Wayne were on the same page with comedy because I just found it so funny. I think that's the moment where you're either going to be all in or kind of out. Yeah. Um, Paul Rudd as Andy, his tantrums, his attitude (laughs) are so funny. There's a counselor named Gail, and she's being counseled by the little sixth graders on her crappy marriage. Uh, Coop's unrequited love. There's a lakeside marriage that's actually really sweet. A great lifeguard scene between uh, Elizabeth Banks and Paul Rudd. Uh, The montage, of course, higher and higher. And and the talent show, the talent show is so funny. It's just, it's it's so good. It's become a cult classic. It led to two different Netflix miniseries. Uh, One was a prequel, one was a sequel. The prequel's even funnier because that one was filmed after the sequel and all the characters (laughs) are way older than they were in the show. Yeah. Um, Bigger, better casts than those. They added actors like Adam Scott, Lake Bell, Alyssa Milano, Chris Pine, Jason Schwartzman, Paul Shear, Dax Shepard, Kristen Wiig, and so many more. Uh, I just, I had to have Wet Hot American Summer on there. It's one of those movies that I watch every couple years and I still get so much more out of it every single time. And I'm going to put in that, like, actually, before we covered this for my podcast, like, I'd only seen it once. And I didn't actually, like, think that much of it. I was like, oh, it's all right. But, like, when I watched it subsequent times, I ended up liking it more and more each time. I do think this is one of those movies that could potentially grow on you as you kind of, like, get used to the absurdist comedy in the movie and just like accept it on the level you know that that it is and the performances as you said are so brilliant i i honestly don't know if paul rudd has ever been funnier than he is in this movie uh for one and yeah it definitely evokes summer camp is like a huge part it was almost my number five pick actually so yeah yeah he's hilarious his tantrum in the cafeteria he he gets (laughs) done eating and then he just swipes his plate off the table it all crashes to the ground and ruffalo asks him to pick it up and his little tantrum that he does is very much like a four-year-old would do, but he's an older kid and he uh, he's just flopping around. It's it's great. Yeah, essential essential summer viewing, I would say. So I, I love that you put it at number one. Yeah. Well, we matched up on one pick, so we got nine amazing summer films. I'm sure that we have a couple on our honorable mentions we wanna we wanna talk about, but first let's recap for the audience our picks, and I will go first. I had at number five, The Sandlot from 1993. At number four, I had Kings of Summer from 2013. 
At number three, I had Summer of 42 from 1971. At number two, of course, Jaws from 1975. And my number one was Wet Hot American Summer from 2001. Okay, and I had Twister from 1996 at number five. I had Shag from 1989 at number four. I had Do the Right Thing also from the very same weekend in 1989 at number three. I had Jaws as well at number two from 1975. And at number one, I had Call Me By Your Name from 2017. A lot of variety on our list. We've got something from the romance genre. We've got horror. We've got kids messing around. We got baseball. We got female driven uh, cast. There's all kinds of cool stuff there. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think it worked out. <laughs> all right. Honorable mentions. Any any films you want to talk about that didn't make your list and we haven't mentioned yet at all? Yeah. So like, as I said, probably either my number one or two pick, if I hadn't already covered it on top five rom-coms would have been Dirty Dancing because Mm -hmm. it's really, it's the quintessential summer romance. I think in a way, like Call Me By Your Name is equally good and maybe even better, but like, I think Shag is partly there on my list because I couldn't have Dirty Dancing, but you know, same choreographer, glad to shout out Shag. I also had baseball movies in my honorable mentions. Uh, Field of Dreams is one that I really almost made my list because I've actually been to the Field of Dreams in Dyersville, Iowa on, nice. a, summer ca- on a summer vacation too. And baseball <laughs> meant a lot to my family. And like you said, um, camp movies, Friday the 13th, parts one, two, and four were all in high contention. Sleepaway Camp series and The Parent Trap from 1961 Man, that always made me think of summer when I was a kid. And then I really want to shout out just really quick. I've just got a few more. I promise. One Crazy Summer, the absurdist comedy with John Cusack. Adventureland, which is like a great movie about working, you know, a summer job. Uh, Summer of Soul, the excellent recent documentary. And Floating Weeds from filmmaker Yasujiro Ozu, which was also nearly my number five. It's like definitely a more serious tone, but it's a great movie about like summer in Japan and this like wandering theater troupe. And it really kind of makes you feel that that summer feeling as well. So there you go. All right. Uh, Floating Weeds. I'd not heard of that one before. Excellent film. Excellent. The same the same director of Tokyo Story. But I think I like uh, Floating Weeds more, actually. Okay. I had a couple that were not mentioned. You mentioned uh, the summer job for Adventureland. I almost had the way, way back on. Um, there were two others for the kids messing around uh, j- little subgenre. I obviously went with Kings of Summer, but I almost went with Summer of 84, which is oh, a really yeah. cool little horror movie from a couple of years ago. And then Stand By Me was another one that I almost picked there. Uh for the summer vacation one, I went with the summer romance with uh, summer of seven or um, summer of forty two. But I could have gone with National Lampoon's Vacation on that one. Mm-hmm. And then finally, one that I think you would actually really enjoy. It's uh, another summer romance called The Inkwell from nineteen ninety four. Oh yeah, I've seen yeah. that one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, stars nice. Lawrence Tate and Jada Pinkett Smith is in there. It's a it's a really cool movie about uh, a guy a kid who gets sent to Martha's Vineyard, and uh, he falls in love there during the seventies. So, yeah, some other cool films for people to check out. Yeah. All right, Jen Howell. We had so many great, amazing summer films on here. It's time to plug what we got coming up on <laughs> your show. 
Yeah, well, like I said, we're probably still going to be in our high school movie series, um, and you can find us at everyromcom.com. Um, you can find us on Twitter um, at everyromcompod, on Instagram at everyromcom, and everyromcompodcast and blog on Facebook. And I will personally respond to you on most of these platforms if you bother to comment. And then after we're done with our high school movie series, we'll be moving into our L.A. stories series. We might not have time for a lot of horror rom-coms this year, but if you have any specific movies you'd love us to cover, like as one or two horror rom-coms, please send those in to us at feedback at everyromcom.com. We'd love to hear from you. I will have all of the links in the show notes. Please go check out every rom-com. Even if you're not a huge fan of rom-coms, Jen and team do an amazing job with the research and the trivia behind things. They don't just describe the movie to you. Uh, they talk about personal stories. It's it's just a really fun podcast to listen to and a fun podcast to guest on. So if you need a, a starting point and you've never listened, I've been on there twice. So go search those episodes out if you need a, a taste. What are some of your favorite films that evoke summer? Both me and Jen would love to know. You can find me at Force5Pod on Twitter, at Force5Podcast on Instagram, and on the Cinematics Facebook page. Or you can do a good old-fashioned email at Force5Podcast at gmail.com. Of course, links to everything Force 5 and every rom-com are going to be in the show notes, so go down, check out her show. You can find it anywhere you're listening to this. And if you'd love to support me, it doesn't cost you a goddamn thing but a minute and a half of your time. Review the show wherever you're listening, follow me on social media, and tell your friends about Force 5. Those very few, very free, and very simple things keep this show going and let me know that I should keep podcasting. The Force 5 theme song comes courtesy of Nate Spears, and the top five list bumper was produced by me with music from Audio Binger. Until next time, stay safe, stay sane, and go watch some amazing summer movies. Thank you.